welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 48, End of an Era. In this episode, the reign of Amenemhat III passes, and the 12th dynasty approaches its end. Power, wealth, political influence, and absolute authority belong to Amenemhat. But the cracks in royal power have begun to form, and the monarchy's decline starts once more. The Sinai Peninsula is one of the most uncomfortable regions the Egyptians ever inhabited on a regular basis. On winter nights, the temperature can drop as low as negative 16 degrees Celsius, or 3 degrees Fahrenheit. It is dominated by inhospitable mountain ranges and outcroppings, which are caused by the meeting of two continental plates. Because of this meeting, the Sinai is afflicted by frequent earthquakes that can reach as high as 7.3 on the Richter scale. For perspective, the earthquake which devastated Nepal in May 2015, causing thousands of deaths and levelling large parts of the urban environment, was just 7.8. So the Sinai is not a nice environment. The tale of Moses and the Exodus reports that Mount Sinai was visited by God and, quote, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. It is hardly surprising, then, that the largest group of people living in the Sinai are nomads. Even today, Bedouin make up most of the population, and their ever-moving lifestyle protects them from quakes and disruptions, which would devastate a more settled population. For the Egyptians of late Dynasty 12, the Sinai was a harsh, unforgiving environment. Nevertheless, more activity occurred in the Sinai during the 46 years of Ni-Matre Amenemhat III's reign than at any time previously. The Egyptians had just two simple goals in the Sinai, turquoise and copper. The pale blue-green mineral of turquoise is incredibly rare in most parts of the world, but it occurs in the Sinai Peninsula in large quantities. Copper does the same, although it can also be found in the eastern deserts of Egypt. Amenemhat III and his government wanted turquoise most of all, and they were prepared to put thousands of men to the task. Sometime around year 9 of Amenemhat's reign, approximately 1835 BCE, the expeditions to Sinai began. Workers undertaking the expedition carved a record of it into the walls of a canyon, and so began one of the most consistent records of activity in any reign to date. Over the next 36 years, no less than 49 texts were carved into rock walls in the Sinai. Most of these carvings were near the community of Serabit al-Qadim, the main centre of Egyptian mining and settlement. You will find the community on our map at egyptianhistorypodcast.com and on our Facebook page. Serabit al-Qadim has been mentioned in the podcast before. It was a major centre for the goddess Hathor, who was often referred to as the Lady of Turquoise, in association with the Sinai. So it was only fitting that Amenemhat III's government now commissioned a major project to build a magnificent temple of Hathor in this area. The Hathor temple was a beautiful work, carved into a rocky outcropping in what we know as a rock-cut temple. It was entered through a small doorway, which was flanked by pillars carved to look like the goddess. 
Outside, the sun would beat down upon Sinai, but within Hathor's cave, one was protected by the darkness, and the cool air must have been a great relief to tired workers and miners. For the local workers, such a temple was a blessing. Hathor's destructive power was a matter of fact to the Egyptians. After all, it was this goddess who nearly destroyed humanity during the age of Ray's rule on Earth, and for miners venturing into the inhospitable desert, the protection of Hathor must have been a great comfort. But the government of Amenemhat was not relying solely on the power of the goddess to protect its workers and interests. They also commissioned new walls for the miners' town at Serabit al-Qadim, and new wells, to provision the many hundreds of workers coming to mine that sweet, sweet turquoise. The turquoise was brought back to Egypt by ship. Boats would stop at a place called Al-Marka, then sail directly across the Red Sea to the major port at Wadi al-Jar. We know this thanks to pictures of ships carved into the rock faces of Serabit al-Qadim, which do not seem to have changed much between the early dynasties and the Middle Kingdom. The only thing that did change is the scale of the operations. During those early dynasties and the Old Kingdom, the expeditions had been seasonal, sent out once every year or so, and returning within a few months. Now, the Egyptians were settling into the Sinai for good, and the work undertaken here, around 1820 to 1810 BCE, would last for a millennium. As I mentioned last episode, the major works undertaken by Amenemhat's government were not military or expansionist. They were economic, focusing on infrastructure and settlement. This trend was most prominent in the region of the Fayum, which has been a major focus of royal attention ever since the reign of Senusuret II, back in episode 41. Nimatre Amenemhat III paid particular attention to the Fayum region. Like his predecessors, he used the region and the local town of Lahun as a royal cemetery. His daughter and co-regent, Neferu Ta, was buried here, and one of the king's two pyramids was constructed nearby, at Hawara. We will return to these monuments in a minute. The king also commissioned an unusual project in the Fayum, when he ordered the construction of two enormous statues at a place called Biamu. Biamu is… well, it's not really anything. There is no major temple there that we know of, it has no particular significance to history, and as far as we can tell, nothing of any note ever occurred there. Nevertheless, the king ordered the construction of two enormous statues, sitting by themselves in the open air. Why? Well, it's possible that the site was a Middle Kingdom recreation of the 5th dynasty sun temples. According to Christopher Kirby, one of the curators of the Herbert Art Museum and Gallery in Coventry, England, the two statues of Amenemhat once formed the centre of an enormous open-air temple. He studied the area in the 1990s, and concluded that the vague remains of an enclosure wall suggest that Amenemhat actually commissioned a large temple around his statues. Including their pedestals, these seated colossal statues would have stood about 18 metres, or 59 feet high. They looked westward towards the lake of the Fayum, and so it is thought that Amenemhat was commemorating his works in the region, while also making a spectacle of himself. The idea seems to have worked exceedingly well. For the farmers working in the fields near the lake of the Fayum, 
the rising sun would have shone brightly over the statues. Then, during the annual flooding of the Nile, when the lake grew to nearly double its normal size, the statues apparently seemed to emerge from the water itself. Add to that the presence of enclosure walls, and it's pretty likely that the whole monument looked like something out of mythology. A primeval mound of creation, emerging from the lake and bestowing the king's divine blessing on the Fayum as a whole. This was certainly the impression of the Greek historian Herodotus, who visited the Fayum sometime around 450 BCE. He saw the pedestals of the statues, and thought that the piles of brick were actually pyramids. It wasn't too far-fetched, for even in the 1800s, a German archaeologist made a sketch of the pedestals that looked rather like small step pyramids. You can see this sketch at our website, and on Facebook. Anyway, the effect of all of this was that Amenemhat III had a very serious symbolic presence in the Fayum. Two enormous statues connected him with the lake and the farms, and the temple enclosures built around them connected him with the myth of creation and the rising sun. Unfortunately, the colossi have now disappeared, leaving only their pedestals behind. But other monuments of Amenemhat III survive to remind us of his overwhelming attention in this general region. The greatest of these is the king's burial pyramid, and the mortuary temple that went down in history as the semi-mythical Labyrinth of Amenemhat. The Fayum Pyramid was Amenemhat's second attempt at a pyramid, after he abandoned one at Dashur. His first pyramid was planned to be around 75 metres tall. Unfortunately, it was designed to be too steep, and the passages beneath it were too complex. This made for an unstable site, and the project was abandoned after nearly 15 years of work, in approximately 1825. The Hawara Pyramid was his second and much more successful attempt. It was shorter, about 57 metres tall, and had a very simple set of burial chambers and passages beneath it. This made for a more stable structure overall, and the work speaks for itself. The pyramid survives reasonably well even today. At least, it survives pretty well by comparison with other Middle Kingdom pyramids. Of course, it's nothing on Giza, but Hawara is a respectable enough site in its own way. Besides the pyramid, the most noteworthy feature of Amenemhat's monuments is the so-called Labyrinth at Hawara. This was an enormous mortuary temple, nearly 60,000 square metres, or 640,000 square feet. This enormous space was filled with chambers, passages, storerooms, chapels, and galleries. A statue of the king was discovered here in the 1800s, and can be seen at our website. A digital reconstruction of the labyrinth is also available, thanks to the work of the University College of London. Put together, the whole complex of labyrinth and pyramid covered nearly 70,000 square metres of land, making it the largest mortuary complex of the entire Middle Kingdom. Its design, oriented from north to south, imitated the layout of the steppe pyramid built by Netjeriket Djoser some 800 years before. Perhaps Amenemhat was looking to his ancient ancestor for inspiration. It would certainly not be the first time that an Egyptian king had done so. All of this work in the Sinai and the Fayum was an incredible burden on the average working man. 
expeditions into the deserts, and construction projects in the Fayum, required the labour of thousands of men, along with many more working to produce food and tools for their use. For the king and his government, such concerns were more logistical than philosophical, but for those beneath these elite ranks, it was a matter of great interest and discussion. How do we know this? Well, sometime during the Middle Kingdom, an Egyptian boy training to be a scribe was given a satirical text to copy. This text is called the Satire of the Trades, and it describes in great detail the various reasons why the life of the working man was deeply unpleasant, and the life of the scribe was infinitely preferable. For the workers living under Amenemhat III, these concerns must have been all too real. Quote, The beginning of the teaching made by the man called Duarqueti for his son called Pepi. It was written when Duarqueti was sailing south to the palace to place Pepi in the writing school, among the children of officials of the foremost of the palace. He said to Pepi, I have seen violent beatings, so direct your heart to writing. I have witnessed a man conscripted for his labour. So you see, nothing excels writing. The scribe, whatever his place at the palace, cannot be poor. I do not see a profession like it that you could say that phrase for. So I would have you love writing more than your mother, and have you recognise its beauty. For writing is greater than any profession. There is none like it on earth. I see the coppersmith at his toil, at the mouth of his furnace. His fingers are like crocodile skin, and his stench is worse than fish eggs. Any craftsman using a chisel is more exhausted than a labourer. No nightfall rescues him. When he has done more than his arms can do in production, at night he still has to kindle a fire. Let me tell you what it's like to be a bricklayer, the bitterness of the taste. He has to exist outside in the wind, building in his kilt. His arms are destroyed by hard labour, mixed in with all his filth. For the carpenter with his chisel, life is utterly vile. All the work on a house may be done, but the food given for it wouldn't stretch to his children. The gardener has to carry a rod, and his shoulder bones age. He spends his morning drenching leeks, his evening in the mire. He has spent over a day after his belly is feeling bad. So it happens that he rests dead to his name, aged more than any other profession. The field labourer complains eternally. His voice rises higher than the birds, with his fingers turned into sores from carrying too much produce. He is too exhausted to report for the marsh work, and he has to exist in rags. If he can ever escape from work, he reaches his home in utter poverty, too downtrodden to walk. Look, there is no profession free of directors, except for the scribe. He is the director. If you know how to write, that is a better life for you than all these professions I show you. A day in the school chamber is more useful to you than an eternity of its toil in the mountains. It is the fast way that I show you. Or should I inspire you to desire being woken at dawn to be bruised? End quote. The writer is being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating to make a point. But nevertheless, it is pretty clear how big a gap Egyptians perceived between labouring in the fields and working as an administrator. This mindset actually survives today. Few jobs in rural Egypt or Sudan are coveted as much as administrative or desk jobs. 
faced with the option of working in the fields and the desert, or in an office with a fan, the choice is clear. For the thousands upon thousands of workers who toiled under the sun to make Amenemhat III's mighty projects, life was no cakewalk. The pyramids of the king were built of mud brick, and this required thousands of anonymous brickmakers and bricklayers. Their arms were destroyed by hard labour, and they probably ingested huge quantities of dust and mud as they laboured in the construction sites of Dashur and Hawara. I can only imagine the frustration of those labourers who, in 1825, were brought the news that their work at Dashur was being entirely abandoned in favour of a new pyramid at Hawara. I imagine it going something like this. Thinking back on these exhausting projects, and the fact that most of them were in service to, essentially, royal vanity, Amenemhat III has been left with a somewhat ambiguous reputation. For historian Nicholas Grimal, the 46 years of his reign represented, quote, one of the summits of state absolutism. Grimal clearly uses this in a somewhat pejorative sense. Now whether this is entirely fair is difficult to determine. After all, when you have a monument like the Great Pyramid of Khufu staring you in the face, it is hard to see anyone else as anything near the Old Kingdom's sense of absolutism. Still, the king's projects were widespread, and yet essentially self-serving. The turquoise gathered in the Sinai was a luxury product used for royal and elite jewellery. The pyramids at Dashur and Hawara were enormous undertakings benefiting the king and his wives, but no one else. And the colossal statues in the Fayum reveal a man more interested in monumentalizing himself than anything else. We do not, for instance, learn of the king undertaking any significant campaigns that would bring back plunder for soldiers. Nor do we hear of him making any significant contributions to major religious centers in Egypt itself. His government is pretty much invisible in the Nile Valley in terms of building projects for local communities. And although he was worshipped as a god during the Greco-Roman period in the Fayum, he seems to have been largely forgotten by comparison with his illustrious ancestors. So, was Amenemhat III a bad king? I wouldn't go that far, but certainly he was a selfish one, who did not make the sort of contributions to Egyptian society that might have earned him a place among the truly great rulers. He was no Sneferu or Montuhotep II or Senwazret III, and any comparison between him and the other kings of Dynasty Twelve would seem to leave him in last place. Still, it was an interesting period when he was on the throne, and when Amenemhat died in approximately 1799 BCE, after 46 years on the throne, it was the end of an era in more ways than one. The Twelfth Dynasty did not end with Amenemhat III, but his reign was the beginning of its decline. If the reign of Sinusaret III had been the peak of this era, 1845 to 1799 marked the years in which the momentum slowly began to diminish, and the royal household began its descent towards a period of disunity and decay. The question is, what caused this? That is a matter we will be exploring in the forthcoming episodes, but one of the major contributing factors to the slow decline of royal power was the steady immigration of foreigners into northern regions of Egypt. 
foreigners had always been relatively welcome in Egypt, as long as they obeyed the king and local custom. Tools and items from the Levant had been making their way into the country since the prehistoric era, and the ancient pre-dynastic communities of Mahdi and Bhutto essentially shared a common culture with the Levantine cities. But this culture was usually carried by donkey caravans led by Bedouin, and by small group of traders. The 12th dynasty seems to have marked a period when this all changed, as from the reign of Amenemhat II onwards, foreigners began to appear in the artistic record more and more. A trade delegation in the tomb of Khnumhotep II showed this back in episode 39, when the wealth of Asia flowed into the hands of Amenemhat II. But Egyptians were heavily involved in Asia itself as well. Sinusaret III, it seems, once became involved in a dispute between the towns of Byblos and Ulatza in Lebanon. The Egyptians had been importing wood from Ulatza, and when the king of Byblos attacked this town, Sinusaret III actually dispatched an Egyptian contingent to mediate the crisis. The result was that by the time of Amenemhat III, Byblos actually seems to have been an Egyptian vassal. Egypt's political foothold in Asia was certainly interesting in a political sense, but it had very real social consequences back home. The records of a Theban household from this period record the presence of at least 13 Asiatic individuals, male and female, working in a variety of household roles. There was a brewer, a cook, a butler, and several weavers, all working in the estate of this Theban landlord. Remarkably, each of these Asiatics is recorded with two names, one of which seems to have been their original birth name, such as Akaba, Aprareshpu, Menachem, and Sakratu, and with alternate Egyptianized names that they had been given by their masters. However you look at it, Asiatics were a significant group in Egyptian society. Although they were still a tiny minority, their presence was a symptom of a larger situation. That symptom was going to become hazardous to the health of the royal family, as the next two reigns after Amenemhat passed, and the 12th dynasty began its decline. 